You can be turning to the last letter in your Bible, the letter of the revelation of Jesus. And it's good to see Herb and Sue back with us. Herb's gone through uh, a physical trial lately and looks like he's come out victorious. And his nurse, Sue, has been with him through through the whole time. So we're very thankful that you're back with us. Uh, this letter, this that we're going to look at today in Pergamum, my biggest struggle is uh, what not to say. And so as we go through this, and I'm as serious as I, can, I possibly can be, um, if, if you have to leave, and I was thinking about Herb, if, you, if I wear you out, just, you may leave. You have my permission. I am going to try not to take uh, as long as I could, but there, I just had to cut out so much, and there's so many, so many good things I want to say, um, and I'm, I give you permission if you have other things to do and you need to go, go. But at the same time, this letter says, blessed are those who hear these words and put them into, into your heart, take them to heart. And so as you look at this letter, I am going to ask you to listen to what I have to say, not because of it's me, because it's me, but because this is God's word I'm going to be sharing with you. And you'll be blessed if you hear this and you take it to heart. And so if it's just a matter of just enduring, patient endurance, then I ask you to stay. But if there's really a a reason that you need to go, if we take too long. Feel free to go. Let's read this together. I'm going to get right into the text. And listen carefully. If you hear nothing else, listen to the words that are written in this letter. Verse 12 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, one of the things I've been saying here is you look at this passage, you look at Revelation, you have to listen for echoes, what I'm calling echoes, echoes from the Bible, from the scriptures, Old and New Testament. And you heard some of those. Some of you who are well versed in the Bible heard some of those echoes. But you also have to hear cultural echoes, what was written to that day and time. And so we're going to have to pull those out a little more. Some some of those are more difficult uh, for us to know without a little history lesson. Let me let me state this. You can read the Bible and not know history and you'll get what you need. 
All right. Uh, for instance, you don't you may not know, uh, you know, the hit of the, the, the white stone, what that means. But, you know, it's a good thing, right? You got that. So if you are, if you overcome, you're going to get something good. You don't know what it is. It's a white stone with a name written on it that no one knows but the one whose name is on there. And you have no clue what that means, but you know it's good. If that's all you know, that's good. But part of my ministry is to help us dig into the scriptures a little more and see what it says and make these applications to our life. To the church at Pergamum, I entitled this In a World of Mess. Isn't that a southern term? I think it is, isn't it? In the world of mess, a world of hurt or something. There's something like that. And so these people are in the world of mess. And so our world of hurt. And we're going to look at how that that takes place. We're going to I'm going to run through this. The city of Pergamum uh, on the western part of, uh, of uh, Turkey. It was one of the major cities of Asia during their day and time. Uh, let's let me see here. Turn. Let's go to the next slide. Here's a neat, neat picture that I found. I was introduced to this artist when I was in Bergama or Pergamum this uh, this past uh, April. And he took the Mount, the Acropolis there, and he drew over it the, the, the what it looked like. And then he colored it. And this is huge, by the way. You can go, I think, to the Berlin Museum. And it is as big as this room. I mean, I'm talking about a huge thing. You stand on a big platform and you can see the details of this. And we're going to scroll this over and over as I talk about this. That's what it looks like today. And that's what it looked like uh, 2000 years ago. And so as I as I talk about the city, you're going to get a, a sense of what we're talking about here. A major city. It competed in power and prestige with uh, Ephesus and Smyrna that we looked at in the previous two weeks. All three are on the western edge of the province of Turkey, what is Turkey today, uh, the province of Asia, what they called it there uh, at that time. Uh, Ephesus and Smyrna were port cities. They had ships that could come into their, the port. Uh, Bergama, uh, Bergama, Pergamum is uh, 15 miles inland, so you didn't have that. Its prominent feature was this steep mountain that it's built upon. And it is a steep mountain. It would be difficult to uh, walk up. It is difficult to walk up on it. You can go the back side and take a cable car up, and that's the way I would suggest you go. Uh, but uh, these days and times, not back then. Uh, it had a long and, his, uh, and interesting history. In 133 B.C., it became the Roman provincial capital. It was a capital city of this province of Asia, if uh, I've described New York, uh, described Ephesus as a New York City, the concept of what we think of New York City, that's kind of like Ephesus. Uh, Smyrna was a port city. And so I'm kind of thinking, well, what would that be like in that area of uh, New York? I would say Boston. Boston has a great harbor. And, you know, the early days of Boston, it was a very important thing. Uh, so Smyrna might be a little like Boston uh, here. Uh, Pergamum, Washington, D.C. It was a capital city. It's impressive, an impressive place visually. Temples all around the summit. A grand, grand altar to Zeus. Uh, I read it's as high as 50 feet high. I think that might be on the, including the platform. 125 by 115 feet in diameter. Uh, constant smoke came up from this. You can see the smoke there. Is, when it comes back over here on, my, on the right-hand side of the picture, that's the... Uh, the uh, altar of Zeus, constant smoke was coming up from this 
this temple um, with sacrifices. It was called the Neochorus three times. They were the temple keepers. They were the the people that the um, that the emperor decided you can have my temple in your city. And that was huge politically to have this. It was very important uh, for them. First with Augustus Trajan's. I walked through Trajan's uh, temple uh, while I was there. You had the temple of Athena, Dionysus, Demeter and others encompassed this uh, mountain. And then you had the steep amphitheater. That could hold 10,000 people impressively carved into the side of the mountain in the shape of a fan there on the right on the left hand side of the picture. Uh, Impressive political power. It had been the capital, as I said, in Asia under Greek rule. Then it became the capital under Roman rule. During the Roman time, they were given what was called the power of the sword from this city came the decision whether someone should be executed or not. It happened in other cities uh, illegally sometimes. But here in Pergamon, the Roman proconsul, it was his job uh, to look at these uh, these sentences and and declare, yes, they can be executed or no. Uh, They had the ultimate authority, political authority over life and death. The political pressure for emperor worship was intense. Even though at this particular time when the letter was written, the Neocorus had moved down to Ephesus. We spoke about that. It was still strong. The pressure to worship the emperor was strong in Pergamum. It had cultural power. It was a center of learning. When Babylon fell in the, about 500 B.C., all the arts, the sorcery, the witchcraft, the cultic arts of, of uh, witchcraft and sorcery, came to Pergamum, ended up in Pergamum, uh, hundreds of miles away, but ended up there. The practice of using amulets to wear, uh, to ward off evil was a part of the culture of that day. So you'd see that buying and selling of these things, uh, uh, wearing of these different ornaments to ward off evil. Learning was honored here. One of the greatest libraries in the world was here, 200,000 volumes uh, books were here in this library. At one time, they recruited the librarian from Alexandria down in Egypt, where it was the, considered the world's greatest library. They recruited the librarian to come and work in Pergamon, live here and improve and, 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 and their um, library. The king of Egypt got really angry. And so he said, we're not going to send you any more paper. And they had a monopoly on the paper. All paper... Uh, was made from the reeds in the Nile, and uh, and so what we call uh, papyrus, and it was shipped up there. And he said, "You're not going to get any more paper. You took our librarian, but you're not getting any more paper." So what they did was they created what is called parchment, skins of animals, and they learned how to make that where you could preserve it, you could write on it. That turned them into what we call books today. Before there were scrolls, this was books. They created the books. And the word Pergamum actually comes from that Greek word, which means parchment. This grand amphitheater was the source of regular entertainment. Uh, all uh, types of plays, performances were put on down the bottom of the hill, which you cannot see here. It's a Roman stadium, sports. It was a big sports center. Uh, lots of different games that came there. Religious power. Already mentioned multiple temples in the area. Near the temple of Demeter, the goddess of 
agriculture was an altar found uh, by our archaeologists uh, dedicated to the uh, to an unknown God. Where have you heard that before? Book of Acts, chapter 17. Paul's walking through Athens, not too far away across the sea. And he says, I came across and I find you very religious people because there was an altar made to an unknown God. And here he says we, they, there was one here also. Down at the bottom of the mountains, an old temple, one of the first temples ever built there, built of red bricks. You don't see this anywhere else in this area. And it was dedicated to the goddess Serapis. It's called the Red Basilica today. You can walk, you can go into it today. Idolatry, which included feasts and festivals, had grand parades to honor the gods. It included drunkenness and immorality as part of the worship. And it was just a part of the daily life. Religious power. Medical power. Perhaps one of the greatest healing centers of the world was located in this city. It was located below this mountain in the plains. And people from all over the world came to be healed. The healing center, it was a hospital called the Asculapium. I couldn't say this right when I got up here. Asculapium. There you go. You try that. Asculapium. The Asculapium was there. Uh, it was uh, dedicated to the Greek uh, god Asclepius. <laughs> Sorry. All these names. Uh, his most famous title was Asclepius Soter. Asclepius the Savior. A symbol was a serpent entwined on a rod. You might have seen it in medical dictionaries. It's on some of the, the uh, pa uh, pages of medical dictionaries. It comes from this very place. Everyone who came to the main gate, the Varen Gate, they were examined by the priest. If they had an incurable disease, they were sent away. If they thought it could be cured, they came in. So they had actually a high success rate of cure if you could get into the hospital. Lots of different things happen. Rest, herbs, hypnotic suggestion. I could, I could, this is one of the areas I'm just going to leave out. How they tried to heal people and the things that they did was amazing. But I want you to imagine the city as it's been scrolling here, the busyness of it, the 200,000 people, up to 200,000 people lived here. Busy, constant education, constant entertainment, all types of worship going on, politically active, socially active, people coming from all over the world to be healed in the medical center, to participate in the city life here. That's the city that we're talking about. He then says to the church of, church of Pergamum, and then he says who this is from. And he describes himself. These are the words who has the sharp, doubled edged sword. That's the only description of Jesus here. Some of the other ones have two or three descriptions. But here he says he has the sharp, double edged sword. And if you go back to chapter one, verse 16, it describes him there in the vision. And he has the sharp, double edged sword coming out of his mouth. And here he has it. And perhaps some say he's holding it at this time, although if you go down later on in, in chapter two, it says that he will come with the sword that comes out of his mouth. And so this double edged sword is there, which is the word of God. We see this um, as a letter of judgment. His words are words of judgment. It's God's word that judges us. 
John, I shared this last week, I think John 12, verse 48. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him on the last day. So the sword that's coming out of his mouth is his very words. And that's what we have today. We can listen to it and we can judge ourselves and make changes. And we'll look at that in a moment. Or we can be judged on the final day. And I believe we're judged now by by his word. I'm going to show you a video and I want to apologize at the beginning. I've edited about 30, 40 seconds out of two videos here and then I couldn't save it. <laughs> uh, just a technical problem that I won't get into, but I couldn't save it. So these are the, the raw videos of me in Pergamum saying a few uh, words about it. I, I, as I said last week, I make mistakes. I, I made a mistake uh, here. I couldn't say Berlin and I couldn't say Nicolaitans. I said Nic- Nickelodeons again. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Uh, there, there's, you know, it, this was raw footage. I just was there. These are my words as I was things that I was thinking while I was at this place. The second one is at the uh, the site where the altar of Zeus is located. It's about two and a half minutes long, I think, or three minutes with both together. So let's look at these. And the reason is to put ourselves in this very place. Because the book of Revelation is so symbolic. I probably have more questions than answers, uh, not only the first three chapters, but of course as you go on, <clears throat> the book even becomes more symbolic. Uh, in the Church of Pergamum, for instance, they, he says, I know where you live, uh, this is where the throne of Satan is, and some people say, well, this, there's this huge altar uh, made to Zeus 40 feet high or can't remember exactly the dimensions, but it was huge. It's in the Berlin Berlin Museum in Germany now, and uh, you can go online and look at that. I'm not going to Berlin, but uh, some say it was that. Uh, it goes on to say, uh, "This I have against you: some uh, those who follow are uh, with you follow the teachings of Balaam and Nickelodeons, and of course, well." We'd have an idea of what those are, but not sure. And then he did tell the faithful, I'll give you a a manna, I'll give you a white stone with a secret name written on that. And so there's a lot of questions I have when when it comes concerning all the letters to the seven churches. And this is the last one of my trip. top of the Acropolis of Pergamum. So this is the site of the great altar of Zeus. It was discovered by a German engineer and the pieces were taken back to Berlin, Germany, and that's where they are today, the the Pergamum uh, Museum. Uh, some scholars think that this is this is the seat, the throne of Satan, where Satan lives. Uh, it was a huge altar around it, where it's with the marketplace. Uh, I don't know for sure if this was what Revelation is uh, talking about, the throne of Satan, but it's a, one of the possibilities. Uh, place where Satan 
it was very windy there also. And I was actually in an area where it was protected. Uh, there's another video I have, and I'm talking the whole time, and all you hear is the wind. The, the, uh, that's just around the corner uh, from here. Uh, it, it's hard enough to listen to yourself uh, speak. It's hard, harder to listen and watch yourself speak. <laughs> but anyway, let's go on. Uh, that gives you just a sense of it. There's other ones I wanted to show you, but we just we don't have the time to go through all those uh, videos. Jesus said here, I know. I know where you live. And he describes this place as where Satan has his throne. This is where Satan lives. He uses both of those. And as I mentioned in the video, there's several, several theories, but no matter what you may decide is the, you know, Satan's throne, it's clear this is an evil place. And that's what I want you to grasp. This is a city that's evil. Satan goes throughout the world. His demons do his work of temptation and evil throughout the whole world. But this, but God said here, he said, but this place is the center of it all. This is where Satan lives. This is where his throne is. And the possibilities are, are you know, a lot. The altar of Zeus, it was impressive. It was a, in a prominent place on the Acropolis. As you came up, if you were down at the bottom of the mountain, you look up and you could see it. This is a picture of it in the uh, Pergamum Museum in Berlin. And you can see it's a, a, a massive uh, structure there. And that was on top of those other uh, bricks that you saw, the platform that you saw. So this is huge. And the smoke is going up. Uh, over and over, it was to honor Zeus. So some people said this was the throne because it looks like a throne. The healing center down the valley with the symbol of the snake. Some people say, well, that is the throne of Satan. Emperor worship, thrice Neochorus. Some thinks that not only did they offer these incense yearly like they did in other places, but in this particular place, because they had three temples to, uh, to the Caesars, that it was almost a daily occurrence that you were expected to, uh, to on a regular basis, offer incense to, to the emperor. And so people said, well, that's the throne of Satan. Pagan worship of all types, idolatry, debauchery, drunkenness, everything went on there. That's the throne of Satan. And as I've thought and thought about this and read and I hear all the different uh, opinions, here's my opinion. It's the combination of them all. As I read about this, this is the throne, the place where Satan lives. It's the com combination, the culmination of everything that's evil politically, morally, religiously, physically, culturally, everything that took place there. You could not walk through the streets of Pergamum without being aware of the very presence of Satan. I know where you live, Jesus says. You're in a place that is totally immersed in the presence of Satan. And Jesus commends them. Here we have a culture consumed in evil. And he says, I know where you live. And he says, I know that you remain true to my name. In the middle of all this evil, he says, I know that you remain true to my name. And in the original, that word true is not there. It's a different word, and some of your translations will say it, hold fast. And we've heard that word before. It's that same word, kreteo, that I, I mentioned before, which means to hold, hold firmly. If you go back uh, in chapter um, uh, one, uh, two, 2 with Ephesus, 
where he says uh, Jesus is holding the seven stars in his hand. The seven stars representing the seven angels, which represents the seven churches. He says, I I have you grasped in my hand. I'm not going to let you go, Jesus said. And he says, and I know that's how you're holding on to me. I know you're grasping, grasping me. You're holding firmly to me. And he says, I know you remain true to my name. And my name isn't the name Jesus. My name means his character, who Jesus is and what he teaches. I know that you grasp tightly who I am. And you're hanging on to that. And I know this, too. In the midst of all this evil, you do not renounce your faith in me. You didn't. The pressure is on politically. The pressure is on religiously. The pressure is on culturally to to renounce me. And you did not do it. And here this word here, it does not say renounce your faith. It says renounce the faith in me. And that means the body of teaching. You did not only not renounce me, the character of Jesus, but you won't renounce my teachings. What the what the teachings say against this culture. You're not going to renounce that. And then he gives this example of during a terrible time. We don't know when it exactly it was. He says, when things were darkest. When things were terrible, you hung on for dear life. You didn't deny me. You did not reject my words. Do you remember when Antipas died? And he's one of the few people named in the Bible who died. He, Antipas, we know nothing about him except he was killed. And that word killed means a violent death. I wonder if he was young. I, if, if you're young, I'll put myself with you. If Us young ones, think about giving up your life at a young age. Maybe he was young. Maybe he was a teenager. Maybe he was old. He could have been married. He could have been single. We don't know. But we do know his name, Antipas. Remember, you did not give up even when Antipas died. His earthly name. But you know, he's also called by the name of Jesus. He says, my faithful witness. Antipas, my faithful witness. If you turn over to chapter 1, verse 5, when it describes Jesus, it says, Jesus, the faithful witness. He says, Antipas, when he did not die for me, he was just like me, my faithful witness. And then he says, nevertheless, or yet, as some of the translation says. And, I, and I, 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 the reason I went to these places, I wanted to sit down and think about the people, my Christian brothers and sisters, who were in that place. And I was just astonished when I when I meditated on these people, astonished the type of people these are. They're under intense persecution. They're under intense social and culture pressure. And we we can understand that to a degree, but not to the maybe to the degree they were going under. And they were an amazing people, just like the people in Ephesus. They were hard workers and they persevered. And here, these people here in the midst of persecution, even when they watched Antipas die for them, they did not give up. They did not give up their faith. They held firmly to the character of Jesus. And he says, yet there's something I have against you. 
And what I thought about when I, when I pondered on that is suffering and hardship does not negate the need to change. Sometimes we're easy on people, especially when I, when I think of my brothers and sisters who are being persecuted in like Nigeria. Some 200 or something were killed last week or last month there in the name for the, in, uh, who were Christians there. And we want to say, well, just, just hang in there. And yet Jesus says, no, sometimes there's some things to change. Even in the midst of Satan's house, Jesus says, you've got to be making some changes. And if you don't, you're going to become just like the children of Satan. You see, these teachings can destroy your Christianity quicker than the physical persecution. The physical persecution, Jesus is saying, you see that and you you fight against that. But this social persecution, this cultural persecution that's going on, that's so subtle, it can take you out and you can die spiritually. So here's some things you need to change. And he describes the problem as this, the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And I think they're descriptions of the same problem. I don't think we're talking about two different problems. I think they're described in such a way I think they're the same thing. Uh, if you know your Old Testament, you know this strange story about Balaam. All the all the kids know it. Uh, that's that's the one where that uh, he's riding on a donkey and the donkey talks to him. All right. It's in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. I'm not going to go through the story. But when I read that story, I sit there and say, Balaam did what was right. Well, why did God want to kill him? Because he was blessing the Israelites. So what's going on here? And the key isn't that he didn't say the right thing because he did say the right thing. The key is he did not want to say the right thing. He was a greedy person. He wanted to curse the Israelites. He blessed the Israelites. And he said, I can't, I can't curse these people because God has only told me to bless them. But in his heart, boy, he wanted to curse them because he wanted the money. And you find this over in uh, Numbers 31. But just thumbs it up in Numbers 31, verse 16, it says they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from God. Here's what happened. Balaam went. He blessed the Israelites. And then he goes to Balak, the king, and says, I can't curse them. But let me give you a little advice. You get your women. You invite the Israelite men. Say, hey, we're having a party. And you'll get them. And that's exactly what happened. And the Nicolaitans seemed to be a group of Christians who were strong on conforming to the world around them, justifying the practices of the world, and essentially saying that as long as you understand up here, as long as you understand in your mind that this is evil and it's bad and you shouldn't, you know, you, you, know, you, shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't be immersed in it, you can participate in it. And still have a relationship with God. You can still kind of walk in the bad areas, but you can still be faithful to God. It's kind of like this. You cross your finger Christianity. I'm, I'm going to cross my fingers. Remember that as kids? You kids do that? Do you kids cross your fingers? You can lie to cross your fingers, right? <laughs> and that's what they're saying. You can participate in the evil around you as long as you cross your fingers. It's basically the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We, God will forgive you. You've heard this. 
you know, I know God understands my situation. And so I'm going to do this one time and God understands. Cross your finger, Christianity, the teachings of Balaam, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. This is a sin of tolerance. Ephesus seemed to possess the sin of intolerance. They were so intolerant, they lacked love. But the people of Pergamum seemed to be so loving, they lacked intolerance. And it takes a lot of wisdom to know when, when you need to be intolerant and when you need to be tolerant. But here he says, you are too intolerant. He says, this was enticing. He used the words uh, entice. Uh, they entice. And that word, some of your translations will say, is stumbling block. Or better yet, it's the place in a trap where the bait is set. That's what it literally means. It looks good and it smells good. My grandson Kai was explaining how to catch coyotes. You want to know? Go ask him. But all you do is you, he showed me how to dig a hole, how to put the trap in there. And he says, and it was really interesting, he said, you put your bait right on the, on the little trap here the, where it springs. And you put something there that smells good to the coyote. And he says, when the coyote comes, his mind will say no, but his nose will say yes. Mm. And I said, I'm going to remember that. I don't want to catch any coyotes, but that's a good illustration. And that's exactly what this is. Because we step back and we can step back and look at sin logically. And I'm in a counseling situation with someone. I'll say, don't you understand what you did? You see, you do A and B happens. And they go, yeah, I see that. I see it. But it smells so good. My feeling. But you just don't understand how I felt. Hmm. And that's exactly what he's saying here. We're, we're drawn by this bait, this smell, this enticement. Our nose says yes, and we just follow our nose. We follow our feelings. And our brain is saying, no, don't do that. If you wait for your feelings to come before you take action, you'll never change. Here's what we have to do. There's only one course of action. And and I'm going to try and pull this together and apply it. When we come into our world, we're like the people in Pergamum. We live in a culture that there's, we ha- we're under intense pressure to conform. When you go to college, some of you college seniors are going to college. The intense pressure to be like everyone else is going to be harder than you can imagine. It's hard enough for adult, older adults. But it's a tough thing to go through. And he says, here's the answer. Repent. Repent. That means a change of mind. Literally, it means a change of mind. But it always results in a change of action. One dictionary I read, a Greek dictionary said, it's the change of mind and of feelings. Hmm. How do you change your feelings? Because I tell you what, when I'm tempted by something, my feelings are saying, yeah, do it, do it, do it. So how do you change your feelings? If you want to change your feelings, you have to change your actions. If you want to change your actions, you have to change the way you think. That's just it. 
If you want to change your feelings, I have this feeling that I want to do this and I'm following my feelings. Please don't listen to Disney. Disney tells you, follow your heart. The Bible says, follow Jesus. It's a big difference. And this is what I'm really talking about. The culture of our day says, follow your heart. Follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Follow what Jesus tells you to do. If you want to follow you, if you want to change your feelings, you've got to change your actions. You've got to just not do it. You've got to change what you're doing. And if you want to change your actions, you've got to change how you think. And the only way you're going to change how you think is if you're immersed in God's word. That's it. There's no other way. We have to be immersed in God's word. We have to see this is right. That's wrong. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then when I'm tempted, I, I make myself do the right thing. And when you do that, your feelings will follow. It's just that simple. If you wait for your feelings to come before you take action, you're going to be like that coyote. And you're always going to say yes. Because your feelings are going to tell you to do the wrong thing. This is so dramatic that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, look. If your right hand is causing a sin, cut it off. We all have, I think everyone here has a right hand. And if we did cut our right hand off when it causes us to sin, our left hand would sin. That's not the point. The point is, take dramatic action. If there's something in your life, stop doing it. I know some people that have taken Facebook off their devices. Because it's been so distracting, it's been sinful in their life. And so they've taken Facebook so they can only get on it when they go home and sit down at a computer. They've limited themselves. They cut it off. And if your device, if your computer is causing you to sin, don't just turn it off. Get rid of it. How can you live in this world without a computer? Cultural pressure. You see what I'm saying? The pressure of the culture is you cannot live without a computer. The culture of the school says your children cannot live. They cannot go to school without a computer. I know that. They have to do their homework. Am I, am I telling you? Is that right? You have to do your homework on the computer? Okay. If you don't set limits, if you don't work within that and say no to certain things, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the yes of your feelings that are going to cause you to sin. There's a time that you just have to cut it off. And you say no, whatever that is. Are you participating in the practices of the world in justifying it? Are you participating in things at, on your job, in your school, and you're saying, yeah, but God understands because you're following the teachings of the Nicolaitans. God understands in my situation, he says, don't do it. Cut it out. We are not to assimilate with the world. We are not to conform to the world. We are to be salt, we are to be light, but we are to influence the world. The world is not to influence us. And the balance is influencing the world without embracing the world. How do you do that? I don't know. It's hard. It's difficult. It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of study. It takes a lot of fellowship for you not to embrace the world while you're trying to influence it. The idols of today, they're all around us. Hey, we see the physical idols in Pergamum. The idols are, are all around us. Materialism, entertainment is an idol. Do you embrace material advancement? Or are you more intent in giving of yourself and giving of your means to others? 
You have to answer that yourself. Do you embrace your material possessions or are you are you open handed and willing to give it away? The world says, keep it, grow, be wealthy. And God says, give to others. Do you embrace sharing sports news and political news or do you embrace sharing the good news? You know, which one? I'm not saying you can't talk about sports and you can't talk about politics. I'm saying, are you embracing it? Are you pulling it close and saying, that's my life? Are you worshiping it? No one ever bows down to an altar of, of a, what's a Trump. <laughs> we don't bow. No one bowed down to Obama. No one bows down to Trump. But we do embrace them. We embrace our political parties. And that's idol worship. There's a way of doing these things and where you're trying to influence the political thing for God, the uh, political system. But if you embrace it, you're worshiping it. I wish we could embrace sharing the good news as much as we embrace sharing politics. Are you tempted to compromise in the realm of pleasure and sexuality and drugs and alcohol? This one time won't matter. This situation, this particular situation, God understands this is okay. You're Nicolaitan when you do that. Do you compromise in the area of education? There's great pressure, as I said, for you to get along. You go to school, there's sororities and fraternities. If you embrace them, they're wrong. But you have to decide, can you influence or will you be influenced? There's a great deal of pressure in our society to embrace evolution, to embrace, uh, embrace abortion, or don't talk about it because it's going to hurt somebody. Instead of saying that's wrong, I'm against that because it kills people. It's killing children. And the Nicolaitan teaching says you can have both. You can have both. You can have one foot in one and you can have one foot in the other. You can participate in the world's values. You can still be in, in the kingdom. And the temptation for us is to be so much like the world and so much to embrace the world. In order, we say, in order to win the world for Christ, and we'll misuse Paul's passage, his teaching on that. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's ineffective. And Jesus says, I hate that practice. With the Ephesians, he says, I hate it. Don't do it. And the only, only solution is to repent. And to say, yes, that's the way I act sometimes. I don't need to do that. I'm going to stop. Because God calls me to change. And here's the result of repentance. First of all, hidden manna. Yeah, if you read the Old Testament, you know what that is. The manna that came down from heaven. And they, God said, hey, I want you to collect some and put it into a pot and then put that into the Ark of the Covenant. It was hidden for centuries in the Ark of the Covenant. Represented, it foreshadowed Jesus, Jesus as the bread of life. And here's the amazing thing. Manna had everything uh, necessary for complete nutrition. You know, a lot of us, a lot of you are sensitive to certain foods. Wouldn't you love it if there was one food that had complete nutrition? You never had to figure out your diet. You never had to figure out everything. And this is an amazing food. One, one serving of this 
And you had complete nutrition for the, for, for the rest of the day. And what he's saying here, he says, Jesus has everything. Everything. You don't need anything else. You don't need the culture. You don't need, you don't need the education. You don't need the finances. You don't need any of those things the world says. All you need for life in godliness is Jesus. Second Peter chapter 1. He says his divine power has given us. In fact, I'm, I have it shortened there. I'm going to read it in its full uh, linked here. Second Peter chapter one, verse three and four says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. You got to know him who has called us by his glory and goodness through these. He has given us his very great and precious promises, though, that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Listen and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. This is how you do it. You focus on Jesus. He's everything. You don't need what the world is saying. All those evil desires, you don't need that. He has everything you need. And these faithful people in Pergamum that did not fall into this trap of conformity or syncretism with the world, he says, you'll be given a white stone. Hmm. What does that mean? The echo is from their day and time and not the scriptures. When we think of white, we think of several things. You might think of more than one thing, just as as they did. White to you can be purity. It can be cleanliness. It can be sinlessness. It can be innocence. And in their day and time, there's a lot of different things. I think when they heard this, a lot of them thought they would think different things. In a law court, a white stone was given to someone who was found innocent. Paul, when he was describing his actions against Christians and putting them to death, and over in Acts chapter 26, he says, when the Christians were to be put into death, I cast my boat against them. You know what literally that is? I cast my pebble, my stone against them. The the way we say we cast our boat comes from this because what they would do, they'd take a stone and they would cast it, a black stone, guilty, a white stone, innocent. And he cast his stone, black stone, against Christians. When a person became a free man, he was a slave, he became free, he was given a white stone. It represented citizenship. It represented freedom. At certain festivals to honor gods who participated in, uh, as you participate in different rites, you were given a white stone. had a secret name on it to the deity that you were honoring. In the Asclepium, When people were healed, they were given a white stone. Inscribed was their name. Inscribed was the sickness that they were cured of and they were healed of. And I think it includes all these. It means innocence. It means accepted. It means healed. It means to be free. Isaiah chapter 62 refers to this in verse 2. Uh, When he says, the nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You will be called by a new name. That the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And he says your new name will be only known by those who receive it. So I want to ask you. What's your new name? You do. You know it. You know your name. You haven't thought of it maybe. You haven't looked at your white stone. But you know your name. Remember name expresses character. What's your new character? What's your expression of Christianity. We all have the name of Christ. We all wear that. We all have the name of the redeemed. We have the name of salvation. 
But I believe each Christian has his only name, his own name that only you know. You can share it with others, but you know your name. What is it? Look at your life. Some of you came from such darkness and evil. Some of you, I've talked to you, your, your background is horrific. You came from such darkness and evil that when you came into your salvation, when you came into Christ, the name Light is your new name. Light. Some of it is joy. I was talking to someone last week and they just talked about their joy. And when they contrasted from what they came from, I saw that's why they're called joy. That's why they express joy because of what they came from. Their new name is joy. Some of you never knew love growing up. You weren't raised in a good family. You didn't have a good dad. You didn't have a good mom. You experienced abuse. You experienced hurt. You experienced pain. And you came into Christ and your new name is love and peace. Antipas was given a new name, Faithful Witness. I think that was his name on his stone. He was the faithful witness just like Christ was the faithful witness. And we've all become new in Christ. Some of you were shy. Now I have a character, the name Teacher, Encourager, Evangelist. Some of you were weak. And confused when you came to Christ. Now your new name is strong, strength, clear-minded, confident. What's your name? All of you have a new name. I will change your name. You're, you, you will no longer be called wounded, outcast, lonely, or afraid. We sing it. Do we listen to the words? I will change your name. Your new name shall be confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one. We see that in every letter. Faithfulness, friend of God, one who seeks my face. You know, all our names put together add up to the name of Jesus. Jesus expressed it all. I can't fully express Jesus. But my new name and your new name and your new name, when we put them together, is Jesus. All together, the character of Jesus. He ends by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. You have an ear? You have two ears? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because this, is, this, this letter to Pergamum was to Pergamum and to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Thyatira and to Laodicea and Philadelphia and to Central. Go out, live your new name, you'll be blessed. If we can help anyone, 